Hello and welcome to The Queer Thesperience. I am your host, Casper Oliver, who is recording this intro uh, well after the interview itself was recorded. Uh, This interview was recorded many months ago, much earlier on in quarantine. So I am just re-recording this intro because my pronouns and identity labels have changed. I am a asexual, non-binary, trans-masculine performer. I use they, them, and he, him pronouns. Also, before we continue into this interview, uh, Charlie and I do touch on some pretty heavy topics, such as things like violent transphobia and other prejudices, as well as things like fictional sexual assault. It is touched upon in the setting of a play, so it's not real sexual assault, but the topic is brought up, so I thought that I would give the content warning. Thank you so much, and hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. Now, let's meet our guest. Uh, yeah, hi. My name is Charlie Alamon. I am a gender fluid person. Um, I don't really identify with sexuality. I'm married to a woman for the rest of my life, so there's that. Um, I consider myself transmasculine, and I use they/them pronouns. And um, primarily, I'm a stage actor. And with our discussion we had, uh, I believe last week, you do a lot of Shakespeare. Is that correct? I do. I do do a lot of Shakespeare. Um, I consider it my specialty. I also find it easier to get cast in Shakespeare because people, after, you know, obviously so much time has passed since they've been written, people tend to be a little less stringent when it comes to gender roles and um, gender quote unquote norms. So I find it easier to get cast in Shakespeare in roles that I would like versus modern contemporary theater or even American classics from the 40s and 50s. Which is really, I, I never thought about it that way before, seeing kind of like the, the age of the show versus kind of the how strict people are to the uh, gender with the casting and whatnot. So that was really interesting for us to touch on. And it kind of led to our primary topic today, is sort of the gender barriers, or not the gender barriers, the casting barriers that happen when you are transmasculine. Um, so, which is really interesting for when we discussed it, because uh, I say trans man, but I think with you, I said sort of 85% man, rest of the percent shrug, and transmasculine is a new term for me, and I really like that. So, uh, what what sort of barriers have you faced? Um, or have been put up around you when you've been in the casting uh, situation? I think definitely there's the tokenism aspect happening where I will attend callbacks that are, you know, obviously without assuming anyone's gender, it appears to be 99% cisgendered men and me. Um, And that always feels like, you know, the mountain is already high enough. I'm pre-transition right now, pre-HRT, hormone replacement. Um, I know what I look like. I know what I sound like. And to have that confrontation of, oh, you called me back for a men's role, quote unquote, men's role, because I said I only auditioned for a men's role. Not necessarily because you wanted me, but because you in your mind somewhere felt like if you didn't call me back, you would be a bad person or something like that. So that's obviously one one big mountain every time I go to an audition or a callback is just the immediate knowledge of knowing who is in that audition room besides me 
who fits into what people think a certain role should look like or think a certain role should sound like, you know? Um, but besides just the initial barrier of people having to overcome their like personal opinions and feelings on um, gender as it relates to theater, the barrier comes with violence. Yep. And I know that obviously as trans people, we want to represent the best of our gender and the best of ourselves. You know, we want to be bastions of decency, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be limited on the basis of my gender from exploring the full experience of human feeling and emotion in theater. I don't want to be blocked from being a bad person in theater. I'm not a bad person in my life. You know, that's not something that I struggle with. And to be able to explore every aspect of the human experience is what I value about theater. And that's where the barrier comes in. The barrier happens when you want to play a bad person. Right, and because we discussed some of our dream roles. Um, like we want to play the bad guy. Like mm-hmm. um, for me, it's like Jim Moriarty from Sherlock Holmes or O'Brien from 1984 terrible Mm -hmm. people, terrible people, but just such iconic roles. And you said it perfectly that, um, what was it exactly that it's uh, basically being man enough until cruelty? Right. Yeah. I definitely feel like there's a barrier where people are all for casting trans men in roles that are you know, the like obviously on the internet, the term is a soft boy. Yeah. That are, oh, he's so soft, he's so this, he's so that. But trans men often don't want to be viewed that way. You know, it's almost fetishistic. And when when you're going out for theater, there seems to be a limit. And the limit for some reason is anger and violence. And it feels like that's because trans men can only be viewed as these soft, kind people, you know? You can be cast as Romeo, but you can't be cast as Tybalt. You could be cast as Edgar, but you can't be cast as Edmund. And it's the cruelty and it's the villainy that seems to be the litmus, you know? And it's so hard to convince people that that's something that you are capable of. And not only capable of, but that you want to do. Right. And what's unfortunate is the stere- the expectations and the stereotype when it comes to casting. It's very unfortunate that trans men have that barrier where from, I'm obviously, I am not a trans woman, but when I have seen trans women or trans feminine people in acting roles, they almost seem to be forced into either the villain or the seductress. But as transmasculine people, we don't get to play those roles. And that's damaging on both sides. Only letting trans feminine people play the seductress and the villains, and then not letting the transmasculine. It, it, it shows the biasness towards trans people who are playing those roles. Definitely. And I think it's not only, you know, the bias, I think it's indicative of the underlying transphobia in theater. Exactly. You know, that trans women and trans feminine people have to be 
bad and villainous and sexy, which are often all wrapped up into one when it comes to female roles in in theater, which is like a whole separate conversation. Yeah. Um, but that trans men are the good guys or they're the soft guys or, you know, I mean, even having played Romeo, they're the romantic male lead, the young romantic male lead, you know, and and I think that's really underlying these concepts that we have in our mind of who trans people are and, and who casting directors feel trans people are. Trans people are not quite what we think of ourselves. When I think of myself, I think of myself as a whole person. I have anger, I have pain, I have love, I have joy, but to only be able to represent the best of myself in theater is detracting from what I would like to achieve in theater. And I imagine the same must be for trans feminine and trans women. You know, they want to explore the softness and the gentleness and they're being denied that. And I think that's, I mean, at the end of the day, really transphobic. Incredibly so. And you find there are certain times, like certain places where, it, like, let's say when you, if you have a very aware and a very truly open and accepting production or theater house or what have you but those are aren't as common unfortunately uh at least with me being in florida it's not very common uh, unless you find the very small independent works and those are very important but when it comes to like like what sort of theater houses and productions have you worked for? You mentioned being in some um, like female, I'm going to quote unquote, female only productions and your experiences in those circles. Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, because I'm pre-HRT and all of that, you know, stuff that makes it even more difficult to audition for men's roles. Auditioning for all quote unquote female or AFAB um, assigned female at birth uh, productions has made it easier for me to get the roles that I want, which are men's roles. Right. And um, the experiences that I've had have been really positive. Actually, I find people who are perf or who are producing all female again, all this in quotation marks, all female role, all female roles, and all female productions are more accepting and acknowledging of me and my gender identity and how I want to present that. Um, I did an all-female, quote-unquote, all-female production of Romeo and Juliet, and I was not the only trans person in the cast. I was respected in my gender roles. Um, when we got to the violence of the play, I was really, like, my opinions on how I wanted to present that violence were really respected, you know, and I really believe that Obviously, when Romeo kills Tibble, there's a decision made. I, I never really liked the, like, oopsie, it was an accident. I think he really does make a decision that the line has been crossed into violence. And I think that as a man and as a young man, he, he needs to acknowledge that. And as an actor, I wanted to acknowledge that. And I find on the whole that productions that are inclusive in that way and that focus on female voices are more willing to focus on trans voices right. as well. 
you know? So those experiences are the experiences that are the most positive to me. You yes, my, <laughs> you my cat see. just walked right into the middle of my interview. <laughs> It's okay. I'm not upset. And uh, to anyone who ever gets to see the video footage of this, I'm sure they're not upset either. Anyway, yes. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> as you were no, but yeah, I just, I feel like um, productions that are female led primarily tend to be more willing and more inclusive when it comes to trans voices and trans people and how they want to present themselves. Not only that, but the production very happily negated pronouns in R and J and they changed pronouns in R and J to better suit me, you know, and that's something that's really valuable and something that you do not see at all. Ever. Oh yeah. Like that's super rare. I actually, I think that's the first time I've ever heard that happen. I mean, I'm not saying that this is the only time in history, but that's the only time I've ever heard of that happening. And that's, that's fantastic. I'm really glad you had that experience. I, I sort of want to trail back a little bit to something that you said that stuck out to me. And that was this sort of them listening to you in the moment of the of violence of, no, this is an action definitely being taken. And, and this is a decision that had been made. And as an actor, you wanted to explore that. And that stuck out to me. Because, um, as you know, and everyone listening knows, uh, I am a murder mystery actor. And sure. I, I perform one of 13 different shows, actually more, when you inv involve like the custom shows we do. In one of the shows, one of the people played by us, not always, but usually, is a villain. Not the villain you're looking for, but he is a villain. And um, sometimes, like, when people who are more masculine presenting play this character, it tends to be this far more insidious character, which is how I definitely lean into him. Very cruel, willing to kill to get what he wants because he does attempt murder, uh, fails, <laughs> but he attempts it. Sure. And, but I've noticed that when more, this isn't a norm, but I have noticed that when I, as a director cast um, more feminine presenting or female presenting folks into the role, not always. There have been a few times where they went just as insidious and it was mwah, beautiful. But there have been times where it's almost, they feel like they have to play it as I only attempted murder because it was necessary. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't something that stuck out to me until you said that, that it's more this like expectation of when it's a more masculine presenting role, there's more room for that insidiousness. Yeah. And, you know, I definitely think that that all ties into how we are raised as a fab people you know we fight hard every day of our lives to break out of those gender norms and those societal boundaries that are placed upon us from birth you know women are demure women are oftentimes you know trying to do what's right women are softer kinder there are passive. moments even yes yes that's exactly the word that i'm looking for women are passive members of a of a story you know and as as transmasculine people i think i think it's hard to break free from that and it's hard for casting directors and people who are doing casting to allow themselves to see us broken from that you know 
and that's just this underlying level of difficulty that we have to fight every day of our lives that I'm not passive in my life and I'm not passive in the story. Yeah. And we did touch on uh, wanting there to be change with how female villains are written, but that's not exactly what we're focusing on today. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But that was also a really fun talk for us to have. Uh, But with us being trans masculine folks and us wanting to play the cruel, the, the vile, the dirty, the, just <laughs> the, the grit and the slime, you know, um, but also the cold and conniving. And I, what was it? Um, I don't think it was you who made this reference, but I feel like this is applicable. As trans masculine people, we are more likely to play the Robin Hood, even if we want to play the Prince John. Yes. You know, even if we want to play the sheriff. Yes. You know, we are more likely going to be the King Richard or the Robin Hood or, or honest, uh, let's be real, probably the Little John. We mm-hmm. probably won't even be the Robin Hood. We'll probably mm-hmm. be the Little John. Because you're the friend, not the, not the main hero. Exactly. Right. You're the Horatio, never the Hamlet. Right. Oh, God, and I'd love to play Hamlet. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that kind of seeps into the... Um, the the trope the, the the trope of the token not the trokin, um <laughs> of the gay best friend the the black mm-hmm. best friend mm-hmm. the trans best friend, um, and you had touched on possibly wanting to do a uh, production of A Clockwork Orange. Yes, yes, which would really be delving into a lot of those darker uh traits for people to play and i would be Mm -hmm. really interested in having you kind of explain your your vision of that for me yeah definitely um ideally like in my dream world which is the world now that we're living in just as like a preface to this whole thing i would perform it as um two one-act plays with the first half being chamber music which is an all-female production and play. It's a really great play. I highly recommend reading it if you haven't. And then the second hour, or probably closer to an hour and a half, would be a one-act play of A Clockwork Orange, um, where all the roles obviously would double, um, and it would be an all, all, quote-unquote again, all-female production or assigned female at birth production of A Clockwork Orange. And in my dream world, it is hard to watch. There have been a lot of um, adaptations of A Clockwork Orange lately, and the one that I ended up seeing actually was played here in New York um, off-Broadway, and it was an all-male production. And while I can appreciate and understand that, there are female roles in A Clockwork Orange, often victims. And the difficulty for me came when these roles, these female roles were played for laughs, mm. played, in, played in drag for laughs, which is inherently transphobic. Right. But in my production, nothing is played for laughs, right? Everything is intense, intense violence, intense, intense cruelty, intense torture. I mean, not only intense violence and intense torture and, and all these horrendous things, but I think at the foundation of A Clockwork Orange, the fear and the danger comes from the intense joy. Right. So ideally it would be this small 
one room theater with maybe like one or two exits and it would start with the rape. The first thing you see would be four people who are assigned female at birth sexually attacking another woman. And I think that really draws to mind like the things that we accept to see on screen and stage where there's no pausing when four men attack a woman. We see it in every movie. I mean, truly, there's always a bad guy in a movie, you know, even when it's a rom-com, when it's The Devil Wears Prada, you know, like there's always like some guy who's being mean and it feels like for no reason. And we just accept that as part of the male experience. And I put quotes around that because mm -hmm. obviously, and this is what I, this is what I would want to address. Obviously, we accept that violence, aggression, and anger are part of the male experience. We do not accept that violence, aggression, and anger are part of the female experience. And that's something that I would really love to explore. How do we confront our own personal opinions on what females and women are capable of? How do we fight against these notions that women cannot be violent? If you don't mind like a quick little anecdote. Go for it. I'm really into horror movies and there's this um, video nasty called um, The Last House on the Left. The original, not the remake. And this movie got passed around underground film houses and it was incredibly intense and you'll never ever see a full, a full version of the movie because it was passed around underground film houses and people would the projectionists would cut out pieces that people thought were too, that they personally felt were too intense. There's a sequence in The Last House on the Left that is female on female rape. You will never, ever see that scene. It's gone. And it's gone because every single copy of that film that got passed around, every single projectionist, a male-dominated field, by the way, cut that scene. You'll never see it. But why not? Women are capable, you know, women are capable of intense violence. Women are, are capable across the board of every single thing that a man is capable of. The only barrier comes from this concept of what people want to see in media, not the reality of life. Yeah, and I feel like it's that projection that ties back into trans masculine people. Typically, trans masculine people are... Uh, well, that's going to go into a whole different thing, but like trans men who are assigned female at birth or trans masculine people who are assigned female at birth, there is that cut where mm -hmm. we cannot portray that violence because they, a lot of casting people can't get over the fact that we were assigned female at birth. A hundred percent. And that just ties back into the whole, we are not man enough unless you have, and we're going to be real here a white six foot trans man, which I have mm -hmm. yet to ever meet a trans man who is over like, who's taller than me to be completely honest. Like unless they can pass as a cis man there. And then th that also incorporates the voice because mm -hmm. a lot of people who are trans masculine or just trans in general, quote unquote, sound trans. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for me, it's like a lot of people hear me and go, oh, that's a man, but that's a gay man. Right, um, right. And there's that too. They have to be able to pass as cisgender and typically heterosexual to get to get around that block. And even if they pass, if the world knows they're trans, that block goes up. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I definitely think there's an element in theater of hiding that yeah. you're trans. When you go in for an audition, you don't tell them that you're trans. When you go in for an audition, you say nothing. Yeah. You have your resume, that's all men's roles, and you give it to them, and that's it. You never, you, you know, there's a, I don't want to say a closeted way of going about it, but there's definitely a, a hiding. Yeah. A sneaky, like, thing that, you know, you feel barred from things simply by virtue of being trans. By virtue of being trans, we ourselves feel like we won't get cast. And not because that's not true, but because that's our experience, Yeah, you know? And that's really upsetting and that's really sad to think about the fact that like when I audition and I audition for men's roles, I, I obviously am trans, but I never say it. I never bring it up. I never mention it. Right. You know, I don't, I don't have that. I can't, I don't have the energy to have that conversation with every cis male casting director in the world. Another you know, another field directing that's predominantly male. Right. Yeah. And that was something that was an issue for me when I was first starting off. And we talked about this as well, putting more male characters on your resume, Mm -hmm. because the best way to have any chance at playing male roles or just roles that align with your identity Mm -hmm is getting roles with those kinds of names on your resume. Exactly. Um, and I'm, I'll let you touch on your experience because our experiences with this are different. Um, I, for a long time, played very feminine roles. Like I told you, in one show, I played three separate moms. Right. Just three different dresses, three different headscarves, three different makeup looks, let's go. And for a while I had those characters' names on my resume, which were Leslie, Diane, and Winter. Very feminine. Well, Leslie is technically gender neutral, but like Winter and Diane, very feminine. Um, And then in another show, I played three different feminine roles. I only remember the name Pumpkin, um, but there were like two (laughs) other very feminine roles with very feminine names. Um, Dawn, Dawn was the other one. And I have had the luck that I could just put the show names and put various leads Mm. when I eventually, but then I was in a show called Act of the Imagination where I played a character named Brenda Simmons. And now I love that role so much. And I'm so proud of that role that I leave that on my resume, Mm -hmm. but I can't say murder victim. Well, I I guess I could, but that would just detract from it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until here recently that I updated my acting resume with the roles I've played for the Murder Mystery Company, where it's Dawn, like D-O-N, Dawn, um, Sal, uh, Peter, Justin, Reginald, where it's very masculine names. It wasn't until I got this one particular gig that got me a crap ton of male roles that I could cast myself as Mm -hmm. (laughs) that 
I actually got those male names on my resume and it's no longer dysphoria inducing to look at my own acting resume. Right, right. Um, I, I would love for you to touch on, because you mentioned doing a lot of quote unquote, like female, like base, um, mm-hmm. female only quote unquote, or AFAB productions of these shows were how you were able to get these roles. And you mentioned a very interesting thing of when they look at your resume, no one needs to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I love that personally. I love the fact that when you look at my resume, you don't need to know I was in a gender queer production of Hamlet. All you have to know is I played Hamlet. You don't need to know that the production of R&J that I was in was AFAB. All you have to know is that I play Romeo, you know? And it's these, again, like going back to that concept of being sneaky, right? I did not start auditioning for men's roles until I moved to New York three years ago. I actually played quite a few bigger female roles. I'm a crier. Um, yeah. And when, yeah. And when you can cry on stage, on cue, you, you get these roles that are women. Right. Women cry a lot in theater. That's kind of another thing that, that we don't really touch on is how frequently women cry in theater um, and how complicit we are in the pain and sadness of women. Whatever, it's fine. And um, how infrequently <laughs> men cry. Yeah, seriously. But, you know, when I got to New York and I really came to terms with, with my gender, I had been... Um, identifying as as trans and gender fluid since I was about 21. Um, I moved here and I was 23, 24. Um, I really, I went on backstage for the first time and I realized as I was scrolling that I didn't want to do that to myself anymore. I didn't want to force myself into being so uncomfortable for such a long period of time, you know, and when it comes to casting and auditioning, obviously I have a better chance right now in getting into AFAB productions because I'm pre-transition, right. you know, but I'm, I consider the, these moments in my life, the, the groundwork. You know, th- this is the groundwork for when I'm 10 years post-transition and I sound amazing and I look amazing and I'm amazing and a man, you know, and all these, all these things that you dream of when you're, when you're thinking about what you hope to look like and sound like when you're on HRT. Right. Um, and they never have to know that, that that one casting director was really nice that that one casting director listened to me. You know, when I, I, the first thing I ever did in New York was the picture of Dorian Gray. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, well, Dorian is kind of like a 17 year old, like weird, androgynous, ageless, you know, sex with everyone thing. You know, I hesitate to call him a person, but, (laughs) um, and I thought, oh, I could pass. That was my immediate thought was like, I could be a young 16-year-old man, you know. And he doesn't age, so he can always look the same. He can always sound the same. He can always be 16. 
And what I actually ended up getting cast as was the painter, Basil, who's a gay man. And I wept because I wasn't passing. I wasn't passing. Nobody looked at me and thought 35-year-old gay man, you know? And now one casting director, when I said I do not accept female roles anymore, I'm not auditioning for any female roles, he just said, okay. And that was that. And I auditioned and I got a callback and the callback went really, really well. And I got cast as a man. And I was in tears because it wasn't an androgynous person. It wasn't a 15, 16 year old teenage boy. It was an, a full grown adult man. And that was like the first time that I really felt like, oh, I can do this. I can do this and I can do this right now. And I don't need to be on T testosterone to do this. I can set the groundwork right now that I am a good actor, not an actress. I'm a good actor. And that when I'm 35, I'm going to be a great leading man. Yeah. And that's, that's always so important. And that's one of the hardest things I feel. I mean, the hardest thing for anyone at any point is building that resume. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people have the joke of, oh, I'm an actor. That means I audition for a living. You know, you're going to right, audition right. far more than you're ever going to act. Uh, unless like Dionysus himself is like, no, you are going to get everything. And that is <laughs> sure, no. sure. Um, but especially for trans performers, actually getting a resume that has like our, our identity on it mm -hmm. uh, is crucial. And especially as you said, it's building the groundwork for when eventually you can walk into an audition room and no one's going to bat an eye. Mm -hmm. And not that that should be the goal. It, it should just be ideal in the ideal world. We could walk in there and just not have to worry about it. We shouldn't mm -hmm. have to be on hormones and pass mm -hmm. to be respected with our identity. But unfortunately, that's kind of where we're stuck at right now. Exactly. It's the closed mindedness of theater. Everybody likes to think of theater as this grand open experimentation but it's really not like it's really not you know i mean so many of of the famous leading men's roles are violent and angry and aggressive and you have to pass you have to pass and that's such an awful thing to say and it's so awful to say out loud and i hate that word even pass is like a disgusting term and word but there is a limit in other people's minds. And it's never in our minds. It's never in trans people's minds. There is no limit to what I'm capable of and to what I can do. There's no limit. I am completely limitless as everyone else in the world is, as all men are and as all women are, capable of doing everything and feeling everything and presenting everything to the best of my ability. The limit isn't from us. The limit comes from casting directors and producers and directors and even other people in the cast who look at you and question why, how, you know? I don't need to know why or how. 
I'm great. That's why. That's how. I'm awesome. I'm the best. I'm the best actor in the effing world, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, like the limit really comes from that jarring moment of seeing a men's resume and looking up and not seeing what you personally think of as a man. Yeah. And that's definitely a holdback on, on their part. Um, mm-hmm. And a thing that. <laughs> My wife just came home. Sorry. It's all good. Um, a thing that you, uh, a thing that you touched on when we had our first conversation is something that I would like for us to not finish on, but be one of the last things we discuss is the difference between um, like the amount of work that you got before refusing a feminine roles versus now, because you did mention that your um, the amount of roles you were cast in did drastically go down. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I was, when I was doing female roles, I got cast in almost every production that I auditioned for. Um, and I, you know, don't say that as a boast, just as a fact. And it's not something now that I look back on and am super duper proud of. Like, am I proud of the work I did? Absolutely. But that towards the end, I didn't want to be playing these roles, you know? And I feel like that detracted even from the things that I could do because I didn't want to be there. Um, When I auditioned for female roles, I was getting cast four or five times a year, which is about as much as you can do. You know, if every production is about two, three months, four or five times a year is like the limit. Um, After I openly started denying female callbacks and female roles, you know, and walking into productions and being like, I only accept men's roles. Uh, My resume shortened, first of all. I did delete all non-male roles from my resume, so it looked like I hadn't been acting for very long, um, which never helps, especially when you're in New York. And then I was getting into one production a year, two, if I was really lucky, and auditioning every month, every other month, you know, auditioning even more than I had been doing um, when I was accepting female roles. I was auditioning all the time because I was never getting cast, you know, and it definitely, it definitely became disheartening. And that's when I started calling it an uphill battle, you know, like those moments of, I know I can do this. Like, I know I can do this. Why aren't you letting me, you know? And so every day when I'm auditioning, when I'm looking at roles on backstage, um, I always say, it's just an uphill battle. You're not climbing a mountain. You're just walking uphill and it can get tiring and that's okay. You know, like it's okay to be tired. It's okay to be, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional. Um, it's okay. It's okay to be tired and it's okay to be frustrated with people who don't see you the way you see you, who don't see all the potential and all of the strength and all of the, like, you know, effort, all of the talent that I have right? and are, are denying that part of me simply because I don't look the way you think Edmund should look. 
Yeah, and that that's utterly exhausting. And, you know, every right to be frustrated and every right to just get exhausted mm-hmm. when, you know, you have a passion and you have a talent for performing, whether it's stage or voice or film mm-hmm. or what have you. And then knowing you have that talent and knowing you have that passion and just the world, because you don't fit their box of gender into their little expectations being turned down and turned away that's exhausting and infuriating and why there's such a I feel now such a newer stress and a very important stress on okay well if you don't want us to play cis roles can you at least give us the trans roles and they're saying no and they're saying no like it's absurd to me that that there's this current fascination with queer stories and no queer actors are being cast. They're there. I mean, I'm here, you're here, everyone else on this podcast is here, and I'm sure you're never gonna run out of people to talk to, so. That's the hope. So why, why? And of course the answer is homophobia. The answer is transphobia. And the answer is they don't view our lives as lives. They view our lives as acting practices, you know? And, and that's really offensive. And it's so frustrating to see that even, even now when these stories are being told and explored, I'm not a story to be told. I'm not a story to explore. This is my life. Right this is my life. This is who I am. And I don't get to choose that, you know? Yeah. There was a quote from the actor, Andrew Scott, and I can't remember the exact quote, of course, now that I want to quote it, but I believe he said something along the lines of like being gay, isn't something to play. Mm -hmm. It's something you are or you aren't. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, of course, as a, um, but there are people who was like, well, it's just a romance. All right. Well, if you have gay actors playing straight people, then why can't straight people play gay people? It's like, well, that wouldn't be an issue, I guess, if gay actors weren't being actively overlooked. Exactly. Wouldn't be an issue if trans actors were constantly overlooked. Mm -hmm. And so once that's not an issue anymore, then maybe the casting itself won't be an issue. Exactly. The issue comes from marginalized groups of people who aren't getting the roles that are written for the marginalized group. You see this across the board. It's not just a gay issue. It's not just a trans issue. I mean, primarily, I would say it's a BIPOC issue that white people get cast as people of color all the time, every day, you know, and that's the primary issue. But the fact that it's just like, Every, every time you think, oh, maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the time that this group will get the role that's written for them. It's never the time. No. And you'd think with queer people, I don't know what you would think, but we're, everyone is here. Everyone is waiting in the wings for their time to shine. And it's those barriers and those limits and those ugly opinions that keep everyone in the wings. And as you said, it's, it's letting, you know, cis, um, cisgender heterosexual actors 
they take on our lives as practice, character development, roles, character study, character study. Yeah. And then they get to walk away and win awards for their bravery in playing these roles. And it's like, okay, you, you get bravery to play these roles, but I get ignored for living it. Oh my God. A da- the, the Danish girl. Yeah. Dallas Buyers Club. I yeah. mean, Brokeback Mountain. Hello. <laughs> like the list is already endless and we've only been telling queer stories for maybe 15 years. Like it's not like, you know, it's yeah. not like this is like the history of film here we're talking about. We're really talking about the history of modern film. And the yeah. history of modern film does not cast gay people in gay roles. It does not cast lesbian people in lesbian roles. It does not cast trans women in trans female roles. And it does not cast trans men in trans men roles. No. Nor does it cast BIPOC people in BIPOC roles. And that I could, I, we, we could have a whole other uh, episode. We could have an entire series talking about how like anime, when they make live action films here in the States, it's like, Oh, oh my God. Right. So we're going to have, uh, I, I'm blanking on actual character names, right? Like light Yagami, a, a Japanese yeah. man. Uh, no, here is a white man who looks like Tate Langton or whatever his name was from American horror story. Uh, because edgy, it's, I don't know. It's awful, and you know, like honestly, all of these things only only call for more solidarity. Yeah, there needs to be serious solidarity between the queer community and the BIPOC community. Like we're we're in this together, and BIPOC people have it even harder than oh, I yeah. have it being a white person, and it's awful. And I wish that wasn't the case, but it's it's true, and it's awful. And I think we really need to support those voices and get those people like even on this podcast like let's go you know what i'm saying like it's time it's time to fight yeah and that's kind of part of what i'm hoping with this is just to get people of all walks of just as long as you are within the entertainment industry and the queer community you are welcome here and to share the stories and because like us talking about the barriers as trans masculine people how many other trans masculine actors out there have faced this and felt like, oh, is just is there something wrong with me? It's like, mm-hmm. no, this is the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, now we are kind of running up on time, and this has been absolutely amazing. Uh, but to wrap up, if you could go back to to yourself when you were just just starting to refuse female roles, just starting mm-hmm. to say, no, I am only playing masculine roles. I'm only playing male roles because mm-hmm. this is what's best for me. What advice would you give yourself or to someone that was in, in those shoes at the moment? It's never you. That took me a really, um, a really long time to realize. Cause when I started, I started feeling like I was a bad actor. Um, and I'm not. I think I think it takes more confidence and more self-assuredness in your talent and in your skill to go against that. It is never I swear to God, if anybody out there is listening that is like pre-T or immediately post-T and is like not getting cast and is having this struggle, it is not you I swear to God I swear on my life it's not you it is everyone else 
but it's not you. You're talented. You're a great actor. You're the best actor in the world, you know? Hell, who cares, right? But that's the kind of level of confidence you have to have to start walking up that hill. The confidence you have to have to acknowledge the fact that it's not you. It's everyone else's personal biases and everyone else's personal struggles and everyone else's personal stereotypical ideas of what makes a man. But it's not you. You are a man. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, you're getting me emotional over here. <laughs> <laughs> like if I could have heard that advice like two years ago, just thank you. Um, well, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, where can people find you on social media, like Twitter or Instagram or whatever? Um, I do not have a Twitter, okay. um, which I know is like a trip, but you can find me on Instagram at Jean-Claude Van Damme, girl. Um, <laughs> Jean-Claude Van Damme, like the actor from the 80s. Damn girl, like you're hollering at a girl on the sidewalk. Um, but that's really weird and complicated. So you can just find me at Charlie Aleman, A-L-E-M-A-N on Facebook and, you know, link me up or whatever and chat, any, anything. I'm super happy to make friends. I'm super happy to make connections. I'm super happy to audition for anybody who's auditioning for trans masculine roles anytime any day um so <laughs> yeah well if you're listening to this on youtube i will put the links in the description below if you're listening to this on spotify or can look in the bio and i'll just type out their handle and you can find them that way and uh, with that you can also find us on Twitter under Thesperience or Instagram under The Queer Thesperience. We have a Facebook page, a Facebook group, all of this stuff you can find in the description. And we have also recently started up a Patreon. If you would like to get some behind the scenes footage, get bonus content, sign up for our Patreon and support us, the podcast to grow and kind of spread our wings and fly. So thank you so much for listening. This has been The Queer Thesperience. And remember, all the world is a stage, so give them one hell of a show. Thank you so much for joining me today, Charlie. And until next week, have a great day. Bye-bye.